I'm so happy to be here today with Drew Garrett, who is a, a teacher in Northern Africa, teaching at the International Music School there, or teaching at the, teaching music at the International School in Tunis. Right. And uh, you also have a master's in ethnomusicology. And you made some intriguing comments on Twitter about the deeper into the weeds conversation with Jordan Peterson, Jonathan, John Verveke, and Jonathan Peugeot. So I thought it would be fun for us to have a conversation because I have this interest in how all the domains of knowledge intersect in interesting ways. And uh, so, but I'd love to have you start out, first of all, by telling me your story, um, how you grew up how you ended up in North Africa, how you ended up studying ethnomusicology, and uh, and what is your fascination with music? Thank you, Karen. It's uh, really, it's a pleasure to be here, have this conversation with you. Um, I really love the kinds of conversations that you host, and uh, being an artist, I'm really excited to be able to interface between music and art and have conversations about how meaning is made and, and things like that. So, um, well, I am a Washington State native, and um, I uh, started learning music. I would, I would say that I started taking music seriously when I started playing saxophone in the school band. And uh, Me too. <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, I just remember being in middle school when the high school jazz band would come down and play. I would be like, that's what I want to do. My dad saw that I was really interested in this and he wanted to feed that passion. So he, um, he bought me my, my, my first like jazz CDs. It was a, it was a uh, four CD uh, compilation of the Count Basie orchestra from like the forties. It's like really classic recordings. And I just yeah. listened to those all the time, all the time. Uh, I took to loving jazz. Eventually, eventually I, uh, I uh, met my heart's ambition and I got into the junior high jazz band. And uh, then I, then that opened up some horizons for me and, um, uh, kept practicing, got a private teacher. He was really inspirational and, and very encouraging. Um, and, uh, eventually discovered that I had a talent for it. Um, a God-given talent, I would say. And, uh, and, um, th there, there came a moment in high school when I, you know, I really wanted to dedicate that craft to God and let him use it in whatever way. Um, and I, I, I played saxophone in church. Um, but then I also had, um, formed, uh, you know, a little jazz combo on the side. I would play saxophone and we had a piano player and a bass and a drummer. And we met, we'd meet in my mom's basement <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, jam and improv. And then eventually we got gigs and I was playing in restaurants and, um, and then, and so that just really took off. And then I discovered I had a passion for teaching music when I was, uh, towards the end of high school, when I was mentoring the younger musicians coming up that were coming up into our music program. And I, 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 I really enjoyed teaching younger people. And, um, you know, I could have pursued the performance route, you know, going to a conservatory or Berkeley College of Music or something like that. Um, like I had, the, I had the chops for it, I would say, but um, when I was browsing colleges and universities, I, uh, I discovered Central Washington University, which is my, one of us, the state schools in Washington State. Uh, I read their music education page and it was just like the first couple paragraphs on that website, like something just really spoke to me, just reading about the, the potential and the promise and the possibilities that could come with a career in music education. And I loved band and 
I wouldn't say I was particularly great at much else. And so like, well, why not, you know, just take this and see where it goes. And, you know, I accept, I accepted it from the Lord as, as a path forward. And so, and so that, that led me to my first degree, my bachelor of music education. I, you know, it's a good five years of just intensive music study. At that time, I would say my spiritual life, uh, you know, my faith, my, my, my Christianity, my faith in Jesus really, uh, um, enhanced and was enriched. I had some really important experiences there. Um, and I've talked about, about that a little bit with Paul Vanderclay in my conversation with him. Um, and, uh, so there was sort of two paths that were going before me, um, a music path and, 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 um, the dedication and the life of discipline and, and growth and learning. That's part of just learning music and being a music student at the high in higher education where you're, you're shredding your instrument, you're spending hours in practice rooms every week. You go from concert to recital, to rehearsal, repeat, rinse, recycle for, you know, months on end for years. Um, and so that was one domain. And then I had this totally other path that intersected a lot, um, but it really was like, if, you know, a different world if, if all you knew was the music life in college, which was my, you know, my fellowship in campus ministry and uh and growing in my faith and uh and so um there came a, a point um midway through college when i really contemplated a career in let's say ministry um and uh, just because i was really uh i was really passionate and i and i really wanted to um really wanted to have conversations about faith and encourage others in faith um and uh I went to a conference and uh, made a connection with, um, there was a missionary in Indonesia and um, that was the first connection I had. And there was a, there was a desire in my heart to go to Indonesia. And, um, and I, I really felt it as a calling, as a sort of a nudge, spiritual nudge to, to, to go. And, and so I, I finished my, um, my, my first degree, um, Bachelor of Music Education, and I got my first job teaching band and uh it was a it was a band and choir job at a it happened to be a christian a private christian school and um and then uh, taught for a year and then uh, my wife and i married and then we paid off our student loan debts and then we went back and and revisited that commitment that we had made in our hearts and we actually we went we went to indonesia and we we gave a year to to serving uh, over there for that for that program so here's here's where things start to sort of intersect um I uh, brought my saxophone to Indonesia, where we were. It was in central Java, and uh, in a in a city called Yogyakarta, and uh, or Jogja for short. Jogja is the cultural capital of Indonesia. I've heard people describe it because Jogja is this intersection. There's well, there's what is it seventy somewhere between seventy and eighty universities in Jogja, and students from all over this country, from the thousands of islands come to Jogja, they bring their languages, their traditions. So it's this really is this crazy salad bowl of, of just different uh, ethnic groups that are Indonesian. And it's also an extremely musical culture, Indonesia. Um, and uh, as so, you know, what am I going to, how am I going to spend my year there? Part of it was, well, let's see if there's a jazz scene here. And so I went on the line and I typed in jazz Yogyakarta and then see what came up in the search feed. And then this, yep, sure enough, there's a jam session. All right, let's go. So I brought my saxophone, went to the jam session 
and it was it's funny so like in indonesia like everyone rides on motorbikes so when you take a taxi you're actually calling like a motorbike to come pick you up when you're riding backseat on this you know this moped that's just going through town so anyways i'm on this i'm, I'm riding on the back of this moped with and, saxophone uh, yeah i have my saxophone <laughs> hanging on my back i've seen i've seen an indonesia i've seen indonesian drum set players so it's like a caravan of motorbikes carrying drum set parts it's really funny um and uh, as I'm approaching the, it's, it's like an outdoor venue. As I'm approaching, I can hear this, this like really good swing and music, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, and I get closer and closer and closer. And then I, then I finally, I take a seat and, and they're just killing, they're just really swinging hard and doing a great job. And, you know, the keyboard player and the bass and the drums, they all just have great chops and they're like playing standards, like jazz standards. And that was this really surreal moment for me. Like, I am, you know, 7,000 miles away from Seattle, you know, where, you know, the American jazz scene, but here I am in central Java, right? And I'm, and I'm listening to this really well-crafted, dare I say, export of America, um, jazz music, like it's taken root here and they're really swinging hard. So anyways, eventually I took my saxophone out and played and then pretty soon phone numbers are getting passed around and they want me to join them on other gigs. And so it was just all this, and it was really funny that time in Indonesia was like, it started at that jam session. It was like, okay, well, I have this gig at this restaurant. Why don't you come join me? So, okay, I played with them and that became a weekly thing. And then it was like, well, there's this jazz festival that we're going to play. Why don't you join us in this festival? So we went out to this festival and played. And then it was like, well, we're going to do a, a, a TV program. Would you like to join us on this TV program to play jazz? So it's just like the, 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 the opportunities just sort of really escalated. There's, it, it was an insanely fluid like climate to be a musician there. Well, we're, I had opportunities to play music with gamelan musicians. And uh, as a saxophonist, entering into um, that uh, musical environment. So gamelan music, for those who don't know, is um, basically you could say it's the classical music of Java um, and many other parts of Indonesia. Um, the, the instruments used in gamelan music, it's entirely metallophones it's it's metal percussion instruments that you hit with mallets um and then there's a couple of other there, there's a there's a kendang which is a double-headed uh drum that you play with your hands and then and then there's a, a rabab that you play with with you know it's like a fiddle basically but most of it's just metallic gongs and pots and and little xylophones and things like that like so steel well, drum would fit into that and um, well, it would not because um, because of two musical elements. The first one is timbre. Um, you have to have the right just you just have to have the right sounding gongs and, and pots and things like that. Um, and then the second reason is tuning. Um, they these instruments are not tuned to Western tonality, so you could not play this music authentically on a Western instrument tuned. Uh, conventionally so a fretted guitar a fretted bass um, well, no i was piano. thinking more of those big hollow those big hollow bowls where they they play the bowl they make it sing yeah I i'm those yeah. called steel drums oh well if it's the steel drums yeah like they'll play inside the bowl is that what yeah. you're referring to yeah well see those are those are tuned to western tuning systems oh um, who knew i didn't never knew those were tuned that, that, that's yeah well yeah it's, it's you can play a whole major scale in there and uh, that's part of the caribbean that's sort of that's sort uh -huh. of that latin caribbean sort of music uh but then also just the the actual timbre of a steel drum just wouldn't really fit the the the, the, the ping 
-hmm. you know, of, of that. And so th there's, so that, so get, we can go deeper into how does music make meaning, but one of those things is timbre. As soon as I hear a banjo, my head went to a certain part of the world, you know what I mean? And so as soon as mm -hmm. I hear a steel drum, I'm thinking this region, the sound of it, when I hear these gongs and those sounds, my, my ear and my head, I go there. So there's a, that's a really important to, to think about. So I'm trying to play music with these gamelan musicians and I just don't fit in. I'm like, my saxophone, I play this note and it's not in tune. And so I, I go to the next note up and that's not in tune either. And I go to the next note down and that's not in tune either. So I'm like, how do I, how do I reconcile this? And, but this group also had like a guitar, bass and drums. It was like a fusion band between rock and gamelan. And anyways, I, it was, a, it was a very uh, ear opening experience, let's say. And uh, it made me realize um, how much I did not know about all of human musicality. Uh, it made me realize that, you know, my music training, you know, where I came from and, and what I learned and what I studied was not enough to really comprehend music writ large throughout humanity. And so that was my first, like, you know, living overseas, going overseas, will do that to you, depending on how you use those opportunities. But like, that was a, that set me on this path towards learning about music, not just music around the world and music I've never heard before, but like just how music is in different cultures and how it develops and what it means to people. Uh, and so that was the first, that was the seed that eventually got me towards wanting to study this academically through ethnomusicology. Um, so let me just try to fast forward the story a little bit. So um, we finished our time in Indonesia and we, um, my wife and I both felt that we, we, we should continue to find opportunities to live overseas. Um, just, we, we just felt like that's a calling in our lives to do that. Um, and we have teaching certificates. And so we um, took advantage of, of uh, some opportunities to find schools overseas. And um, uh, long story short, we were able to find jobs. And uh, um, the school here in North Africa offered us positions and so here, so here we are. So we came here in 2017, and um, this is uh, year number six living in North Africa. And when I got here, that's also when I started my master's in ethnomusicology. And so I chose to, I chose to build on my experiences in Indonesia, learning about a different tonality, a different tuning system and music system, to apply it to Arabic music and North African music. So my my years doing my master's degree was spent studying and learning about Tunisian classical music. And so my, my thesis, which turned into like a, my thesis committee said I wrote some, I wrote something that was like halfway between a master's thesis and a dissertation on, it was, it's about basically the theory of melody in Tunisian classical music called Malouf. And so that was another non-Western melodic tuning tonality system um, that uh, I was able to develop some some knowledge in and, and learn about. So, anyways, that's a little bit about my sort of my academic background, professional background. Currently, I'm teaching a, a band, choir, and guitar um, in my in my day job. And then uh, outside my day job, I love to have conversations about meaning and and music and faith. And then finally, how did I how did I get plugged into like why am I talking to you specifically? How did I get plugged into the meaning code? You know, what's brought me here was. Um, yeah, maybe four or five years ago, I um, uh, discovered the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. Um, and uh, uh, that was through a colleague um, who, who said that that she liked what he was saying. And so I 
I looked them up on YouTube and then I wasn't, at first it was when I was doing my academic studies, I was reading postmodern philosophy and sociology and anthropology. And um, when I heard Jordan Peterson giving lectures that critiqued a lot of postmodernism, I thought that was really interesting because it, because it really is in some, in some social circles, like on Facebook, I'm part of some different Facebook groups where there are academics and it's very postmodern, things like that, like that, it would be orthodoxy among those social groups. And he's saying things that would be heterodox, right? Things that would be uh, very much rejected. And so I was just enthralled with that, like, just like wanting to learn about, you know, where does that come from? And, and then eventually I discovered him talking about faith and religion. And it was like, okay, well, here's a, here's a, someone who's basically a secular person in, in that sense of just not being an, an overt religious person who still has a deep admiration and appreciation for Christianity and the Bible. I'm someone who loves to try to build bridges with people who come from a different faith perspective, different maybe religious background or different orientation. And how can I build bridges with, you know, what I believe to be true about, you know, who is God and, and how do we make meaning in our lives? Um, and so everything, um, a, everything about what he started doing in his, in his movement, um, especially with his biblical lectures. And um, uh, that was very moving to me. And I, I just binged a lot of that stuff. And then it was on Twitter when, um, I don't know how I started following um, Bethel O'Reilly, but, uh, or McGrew, <laughs> um, <laughs> mixed up the names. I was following her and she said, Hey, check out Paul Vanderclay. And so that that's when I discovered Paul and then I listened to him a lot. And so um, anyways, that's how I sort of got plugged in there. Um, and uh, in the last, in the last year and a half, I've had some cool opportunities to be able to have conversations just like this with people from the symbolic world. And um, there's a, there's another guy on the bridges of meaning discord server. He has a channel dedicated to music, meaning and mystery and um, been able to speak with him and, and Paul had me on too, so I'm really glad to be here and continue trying, trying to uh, trying to figure out what is this thing called music and uh, how can we build bridges? We, how can we use music as a bridge to uh, access you know forms of knowledge and knowing and and thinking that uh, are unavailable through other means? Well, and sometimes I meet people through my comment section, which is usually tremendously rich. Sometimes. <clears throat> Some videos go by without any comments, which I don't understand. And then other videos, we have this tremendously rich conversation in the comment section and I meet interesting people and sometimes we talk together. But you I met via Twitter and I know Twitter has a bad rep <laughs> for yeah. most people. But I, but I think if you really curate your space tightly enough on Twitter, it can be a tremendous place to meet people who have really fascinating ideas. and. Because it requires you to refine your thinking down to <clears throat> um, either a one one tweet thing or a, a thread of ideas, um, it's a good place to kind of summarize your thinking about topics. I had a, a first account, which I then ran a program to just totally erase because I didn't do that curation job satisfyingly and so i i decided that my current twitter account should be dedicated as much as possible just to focus on this topic that hopefully mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about more and uh and uh, and so whenever i hear a video that comes out and and you know peterson or verveke or pajot or anybody just makes a makes a really interesting comment about music it's an opportunity for me to sort of riff on that and hopefully throw some thoughts out 
Well, and we will get to that. Um, before we get to that, I kind of wanted to show you an idea I was bouncing around and because I'm not a music major, I need to get some input from somebody like you. <clears throat> so I'm going to share a screen here and, and show you something. <clears throat> Can you see that? Uh, yes. Okay. So, so what we have here is, um, I just jotted this down today, so it's not a very nice graphic. <laughs> Uh -huh. But what I've tried to do is I've, I've made uh, like a color harmony chart here, like a color chart. And we yes. go through starting with blue and then to blue, green, green, yellow, green, yellow, and so forth, all the way around, going by half steps. And it, mm -hmm. oddly enough, fits a clock. So you have 12 okay. steps there. And... And in color harmony theory, one of the most satisfyingly beautiful combinations is something called a split harmony. So blue violet and yellow orange are opposite each other on the color wheel, which would make them complementary. And you can do a certain amount with complementary colors when you're making a painting, but it would be very obviously complementary colors. <clears throat> And there's not maybe as much variety as an artist would like to have. But a split complement takes one element of the complement, which would be this node down here at yellow-orange, and then adds two edges. And those two edges go up either side of the complementary color. So yellow-orange, the split complement would be blue and violet. It's a little bit close to a typical triad, like red, yellow, and blue would be a typical triad, but typical triads kind of lack subtlety when you're painting. So these split complements have subtlety and variety. <clears throat> and the interesting thing that I picked up on when I was thinking about this is this circle of fifths in music. Mm -hmm. So if you go the circle of fifths, you go from C, you're going to go down here to F, and then the next fifth is up here to B flat. And if you continue on the circle of fifths, I, I, I hope people can see my cursor, then you would go down here and make another split complement that would be right. yellow, green, violet, and yellow, orange. Yes. And then you continue on and you have another split complement with yellow, green, red, and violet. And as you continue on, you end up with a 12-pointed star each point of the star being the vertex of a split complement. And I thought that's really strange that the circle of fifths and split complements would be overlaid on each other that way. So for, for the non-musical viewers, could you explain the circle of fifths and what role they play in Western music? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um... So uh, on a standard piano, you will have 12, 12 uh, piano keys starting on C, going up to C. There's going to be 12 on there. Um, the circle of fifths is a circle of harmonic relations. Um, we, we call it fifth because um, the starting note of a C scale is C, and then the fifth note of that scale is G. So G is the fifth of C. Um, gosh, I kind of wish I had a piano set up ready to go so I could just start doing some live demonstrations. But um, basically, um, 
the relationship of a G chord to a C chord is uh, we call that a five to one relationship or it goes from five to one. Um, um, it's a fifth, it's a relationship of a fifth part. And so that, that, that harmonic relationship of when you play a, a five chord going, resolving to a one chord um, is the most basic of, of all types of harmonic resolutions that we do in Western tonality and Western music. Well, before we go any farther, let me say people are probably confused now because I was going around the circle to the right. But if yeah. I went around the circle to the left, this would be the fifth. C, one, two, three, four, five to G. And then one, two, three, four, five to D. So the circle of fifths going to the left is the circle of fifths that you're describing. It works exactly the same way in terms of the color harmony. Yeah. Well, the other thing is people also might want to know if you see a circle like you your circle in terms of the notes that are written are these are this is a chromatic scale um th those are the half steps going all the way around the circle whereas mm -hmm. the circle of fifths like c in the 12 o'clock position g would be in the one o'clock position and then d would be in the uh or a would be in the two o'clock position those are the sort of the the, the, the fifths going around well, sure. Um, if you if you do yeah. if you count one step as a fifth, yeah. And I'm I'm counting each step as one step, and then counting around five steps. So, so C to G is five steps. It's a fifth. G to D is five steps. It's a fifth. Yeah. D to A A A sharp. Uh, D to A. One, two, three, four. Yeah. D to A is the fifth, and so. Um, going around to the left you get these fifths but it creates the same color relationship with these colors that are on the screen here in this split harmony yeah so, I, I think that's a fascinating uh um overlay uh i've seen i've seen other attempts at uh graphically representing color theory um with uh music theory and the fifth well we could take this even more so um with sound the sound that you hear in my voice and the sound you hear from an instrument um a given sound is actually um uh it's a it's a resonance of many sounds that are actually indeed happening at the same time mm -hmm. called as harmonics and so the, the the sound that you're actually hearing is we would call it the fundamental sound you know um and and every fundamental sound, it's then colored by uh, sound waves called overtones that increasingly become inaudible and inaudible to the human ear. Um, and so when I do this with my students, when I have one student play a note and then I have another student match that pitch, if it's in tune, if you cup your ears like this, you will hear a ringing in the air. And that ringing is a fifth above whatever that well, actually technically it's a 12th which is an octave plus a fifth uh above above that's above the, the fundamental the tuning pitch so the the fifth is like a, a um it's like a it's a natural you could say it's a naturally occurring phenomena as a result of um resonance and being in tune and things like that and so um the, the, and then there's a whole there's a whole discussion of physics of how overtones work. The first overtone is an octave above, and then the next overtone is a fifth above. 
above that, it's another octave, and then you get the third. And so with that sequence of overtones, you actually get a major chord, like a major triad over the course of so many overtones. And then it on and on and on it goes ad infinitum into inaudible overtones that we hear. But overtone, yeah, overtones are, the inaudible is part of the audible and it shapes it shapes what we hear in the audible. And, and, and there's, there's all sorts of other things you could say on that. For example, this, the shape of the sound wave, it, it, um, pitches that you hear like a human voice or a xylophone, as opposed to a snare drum, there's no pitch, it's just a sound. It's just a, we call that definite pitch and indefinite pitch. You get definite pitch when the, the shape of the sound waves of the overtones is, is, uh, is, uh, uh, is the same shape, but a faster frequency of the fundamental wavelengths. If you have a perfect sine wave, then the next overtone is going to be the same shape, but at a faster frequency. Whereas an indefinite pitch, what I've heard is that the, the actual shape of the sound wave is not congruent with the, the fundamental wave. So it's actually different shapes of, so the overtones are the reason we don't hear a pitch on like a clap, for example, there's no like actual tone that's resonant there. That's something I never knew. That's really interesting. Yeah. But but with human voices, you do hear overtones. Is that um, and yeah, there's. Mm -hmm. That's because our human voice there's, naturally there's the art has of singing a, with overtones. Mm -hmm. Well, but when we're talking, even you hear, <clears throat> there's a certain resonance to human speech. Uh, yes, absolutely. Our, our 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 like our whole. Like when you're when you're speaking, you can actually feel your your skull vibrating, right? And that's it's actually it's, it's resonance in your in your bones, right? It's and 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 that's how we're able to 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 make to produce tones, you know, coming out of our vocal folds a little bit. So we're designed to be a resonating chamber. Well, see, now that's I think that I definitely think that, but I hear a lot of evolutionists say that it's just secondary that we accept this bone structure and our tongue and everything for speech, even though we were not intended for speech or music, that, that we're just utilizing this structure that we had. And yet this structure is so perfectly fitted. You know, the, the inside of the mouth is so perfectly fitted to extend the, the vocal range and, and uh, the inside of your head for resonance and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're designed for when it. When you consider just how many, well, when you consider, when you start to fathom how many thousands of languages there are in the world, uh, the, the, the range of possible sounds that humans do with their vocal cavity and, and, and uh, is, is, is kind of unbelievable when you actually think about just you know, when you have tonal languages over here, you have languages that have clicks and other sounds in here. Uh, in Arabic, they use more, they, they have some vowels that are more guttural that we just don't have in English, you know, and, and, uh, and, um, and then you apply that to singing styles. And then you apply that to all the different ways people make percussive sounds with their voices. And um, a lot of that, I think, is tied to I mean, I would say it's imago day. I would say that there's just a, there's just there's a creativity that's endowed in in the human spirit and in and in just human ontology. I think to be human is to do that. I think you you mentioned you brought up evolutionary biologists talking about let's say music and artistic output as sort of a byproduct of uh, processes that were fundamentally formed for other things. Um, like Steven Pinker has a, a video and he writes this in his books too, just about like music is 
music what does he call it auditory cheesecake or something like that where it's like it was not necessary um and you can't and he says and i actually agree with this you can't explain it the way evolutionarily the way you you could explain why we have uh what is stereo vision why we have you know like because that solves having two eyes solves this engineering problem of being able to see how far away something is but there is no engineering problem associated for why music was the solution for that it, it does other things but one of them is not a direct like biological thing um yeah well but i heard you uh, on the podcast that you did with Derek Fiedler, you were talking about birdsong and that um, there is a question whether birdsong is fundamentally communicative or, or musical. Um, yeah, I, I have opinions. There's two ways you could, there's two ways, there's really two ways, depending on, it really depends on your definition of music at this point. <laughs> Classic Peterson move. What do you mean by music? You know, but <laughs> Uh, what do you mean by if it? You take view, <laughs> if you take the view that, that music is absolutely a form of communication that's based on tonality rather than speech, then bird then we can say birdsong is music from an objective definition. But if your definition of music is well, no, you have you have basic communication, and then music necessarily is beyond just communication, then, then in my argument, saying birds from that definition, bird song, whale song, um, since that's how they, okay, well, okay, like uh, an ornithologist or, you know, like a, somebody who studies birds is gonna say, well, to us it sounds like bird singing, but to them they're saying, this is where I live, go away from me, or this is where, or, or, please come so that we can mace, right? Like these are actually signals for, for things rather than an aesthetic purpose that does something beyond, you know, a, a, a basic type of communication. I, and this is where I'm still sort of wrestling with, you know, what is, what is this thing we're calling music? Um, I think, I think that word gets us into a lot of trouble when we're, if, if you're trying to explain something from the scientific image and then you say music, you've left the scientific image you, you well i mean let, let's just back off to what you said about aesthetic um so we have a dog and the dog loves to go for walks because the dog loves to smell things now my daughter when we got this dog she did a lot of study about dogs and so what i'm saying right now is what she tells me to be true and i believe it that because dogs have such a sophisticated smell system, like millions more receptors than our smell system has, that they can tell when they, when they smell some other dog's marking, they can tell where that dog has been, how long ago it was there, what it had eaten before it marked. Um, it's like they're reading a book. They're, they're like enjoying their morning paper or they're enjoying a fine yeah. novel when they are out on a walk. And, and yeah. you could say that that's a, a, just a communication or you could say it's an aesthetic thing for a dog. They certainly act like it's aesthetic because they get so excited. Dogs are way more passionate about smelling. I mean, almost as passionate about smelling as they are about eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, if sort of what we're saying here is, um, 
an aesthetic uh, uh, or an art form or something like this would be a, a very uh, a very dense and compressed way of communicating that says many things at the same time but it doesn't just say one thing at one time maybe the way direct speech is right we have a one-to-one -one, we have a one-to-one -one correlation between when i say the word tree i'm not talking about most other things that exist right but and so but then if a dog right smells droppings then that's actually saying a whole bunch of things not just one thing whereas when i smell it i just sort of like okay that's dog droppings i don't get any other thing from it so maybe we could say if we wanted to say that the arts and music are uh we could we, we heightened communication um you know lots of people have tried to say it's um you know is you know music is a language or or things like that um uh yeah i can i can see where you're coming from well, let me throw another wrench in here because this, this is something that you mentioned before we got online um, that you wanted to talk about from the deeper into the weeds conversation. This difference between um, a melody, whether a melody is a narrative or not, the, the difference mm -hmm. comes in the passage of time and how you manage time. If if you give, if you add the passage of time, then a melody can tell a story, then it is certainly a narrative. But if you're cutting time into a moment in time, then you're only getting one note of the melody and it can't really be a narrative. But this aesthetic issue, when that dog smells that story, it's an instantaneous thing in his mind, just like when you have mm. a dream, sometimes that dream is full blown in your mind and it's only there for a second. So it's almost as though it's timeless. And in that sense, beautiful music, when it reaches that moment where everything just explodes in your head, that's a timeless moment. So maybe there's something about aesthetics that is outside of the time frame. Karen, that was really well said. Uh, I, uh, yeah, that was good. Um, we well, yeah, with respect to that, um, uh, when, when Braveki was talking about melody and narrative, um, I see with music, music is the, the art form of time par excellence. I think, uh, you know, we, 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 we talk a lot about sound, but it really, really is about the relationships of things over time. And there's, there's this, when you're listening to a, a piece of music, a song, um, Right. And, and Peterson even says this in the conversation just about like here in note, but it's in relationship to the note before it and the note after it, it, you know, and then it's, and then that's juxtaposed with other layers of music and sound happening at the same time. Um, there's this concept of the eternal. Now there's this moment in time. That's right now, this moment that I'm always encountering and engaging music, but then I'm also always encountering that moment now present tense moment with the thing that has just happened and with this sense of anticipation for the things that are coming to happen now that then is um can that experience is also connected to every other time i've heard this piece of music or not and it's also connected to every other time i've heard music remotely like this because all of those patterns of sound are inherited and 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 learned over the course of centuries millennia even we have patterns of sound that we're still doing that we've always done as humans when it comes to making music and um and so and so um it, it is about time uh one of the things about let's talk about tunisian music 
and then I'll make a comparison with Western music. So um, we're a symphony, Mozart's symphony number no. 40 in G minor, for example, is going to have multiple movements. We call them movements. Well, that's an important word. Why is it a movement? Um, and usually there's four, maybe five of varying tempos, different speeds. And so you, it's almost like, you know, you're starting in one gear and then you change gears and you change gears again. And those different speeds um, allow for different capacities of connection. Uh, we, we obviously, we, we connect feeling with different speeds, something that's faster rate. You know, if our heart is pumping faster for some physical reason, then that's because there's an activity of heightened tension and excitement. And then when we hear music of a slower speed, well, when our heart rate is much slower, we're usually in a more relaxed, our, we are relaxed, our atmosphere is relaxed, or even if we're sad, our heart rate's not going to be super pumping. We're, 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 everything's just slows down. Um, in Tunisian music, they have, they use cycles also. Um, so like their, their suite is called the Nuba and it does similar things to a symphony, but what, what it does is it'll, it'll start slow and then it'll get faster and then it'll slow down again for a different rhythmic cycle. Um, and each, each, each Nuba, each suite is interlocked. It's connected to the suite in the cycle. So within a suite, you have movements that are connected cyclically. And then each of the suites is also part of a cycle. You do this one first, and then traditionally this one comes next. You know that because in the middle of the first suite, right in the middle, there's a movement where the, the, it changes scales to match what is the scale that matches the next suite. And so you know that they're interlocked all around. So it's like, it's cycles within cycles within cycles. Um, and I think cyclical time is what music does. And so the reason I'm talking about this is to the degree that music communicates, um, it really, when you think about, when you think about the visual arts versus, versus let's say music, um, where these are two different dimensions that we're encountering here. Um, my illustration is this, if I wanted, if I wanted to represent, I wanted to represent a, a canvas of, of uh, like a wintry canvas, um, and I, if, if, if the dead of winter in Scandinavia or Canada, you know, or, or just some really frigid place. Okay. Um, I already sort of know what colors I need. I already sort of know what forms should be there. Um, because I have a visual experience of what it is to be cold. And then if I wanted to put emotion of the feeling of being cold, I can use color to my advantage and form and texture to my advantage to do that. Um, in music, there is, you listen to Vivaldi's Winter. There's no, if I just showed you Vivaldi's Winter and I didn't tell you that this was about winter, um, you actually wouldn't see a tree. You wouldn't see snow necessarily. You wouldn't see there isn't a one-to-one -one formal relationship between these sounds over here and then these shapes we would then paint over here. Um, Vivaldi's spring is about spring, but you wouldn't know that just by listening to it necessarily. In India, they have raga music that's for the season of spring, but those two aren't really the same music at all. You use different instruments and things like this. So, so how is it possible that sound can convey um, what we would easily represent visually because we know what things look like, but like there isn't a one-to-one -one sound of like, if I want to represent 
a, a tree, there's a famous piece of music called the Pines of Rome, right? Well, if I played for you the Pines of Rome, you wouldn't like hear that. But if I showed you a picture of it, you'd say, okay, it's a tree, maybe it's in Italy. Um, so it, all I'm trying to say is music in particular is, it, it, it is like, they say time is the fourth dimension. I think music is truly another sort of dimension of communication that we just don't get through a, a visual medium. So in that sense, I do believe in that, in the maxim that, that music is communicating. It does things where words fail. It is communicating on a level um, that you don't get from, uh, uh, if you need to go beyond having a one-to-one um, agent arena relationship, if you need to somehow escape that music, it's, it's no surprise to me at all why music is so universally used in human ritual throughout the world, throughout time to transcend. Um, it's an embodied experience. Um, and precisely because it's liberated from, from very specific forms, um, music is always associated with things that are divine, things that are transcendent, things that are beyond the human capacity to see and to reason. And, it, and, and, and it's, uh, there's, a, there's a Sufi author named uh, um, uh, Inayat Khan, and uh, he, he writes about music saying, music is the, is the one art form without idolatry in the sense that it doesn't, it doesn't coerce you to, to one form. It, it's, you know, he even says words, words themselves force you to think about very specific objects or object relationships, but musical sound, with musical sound, you can you can go beyond and transcend that. So I was, that was long-winded, there was a lot going on there. Oh no, I really, I, I made myself a note, make a clip of this, I can just post the clip because it was so good. Yeah, because there is something about, <clears throat> there are certain beautiful things that we, we, we get brought up into the beauty and that that makes something that has actually occurred over time, the creation of the beauty, whatever, makes that time a moment of timelessness. So um, so there's a connection there with the beauty, the aesthetic experience. Um, and when you said music is another dimension of communication because it's an embodied experience and, and it is used to transcend, I mean, that's, a lot of people use music in the same way that other people use drugs. You know, I need mm -hmm. to be in a space where I where I'm feeling something powerful that's going to take me out of this circumstance that I'm in, and mm -hmm. it's going to help me to transcend this circumstance. And and uh, and music can do that because of that timeless element. Now, I, I heard this. I think it's true. Uh, Wolfgang Smith was saying that he had read that Mozart would get a symphony in one flash of light in his mind. But then, of course, it would take maybe weeks for him or days to unwrap that and to fan it out into the different elements of the piece of music, the different arrangements for different instruments and so forth, so that eventually it could be played and the people could experience what he had seen in his mind in that one instant. So that's a illustration of how something can be at the same time timeless and then also mm. move into time and then bring people back into that timeless moment with Mozart in the listening. I like this. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's, man, so many, so many things here. Um, 
there's a sociologist of music named Robin Sylvan. She wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Religious Dimensions of Popular Music. Well, that was the subtitle. I'm forgetting the name, the actual title. I'll, I'll look it up later. Uh, Traces of the Spirit. It's called Traces of the Spirit, The Religious Dimensions of Popular Music. She does a really nice, succinct job in the first, in the introduction and the first two chapters of that book, unpacking how our use and consumption of popular music, pop music in general, different genres, what are you talking about? Rock, rock hip hop, trap music, uh, EDM, jazz. Um, uh, she does a really awesome job of um, showing you how the musical experiences in each of these subcultures and each of these genres is doing things analogous to or equivalent to what's going on in religious experience and, and, and why people are always equating, oh, I went to this concert, it was like a religious experience. Or especially if there are psychedelics involved, I went, you know, I went to this concert and, and I was seeing things because the music was moving me to see things in a certain way. And well, to this concept of time and timelessness, one of the things that she points out and, and she cites she cites other other scholars. Um, one of the dimensions of music is is it is a virtual reality because of the tempo factor and the rhythm factor. So a different tempo, different speed, and just the rhythm of the song, it is setting up virtual parameters um, that we are entering into, either as a listener, as a performer, or participator. We go through life, and this is, this is where I apply that framework to the, 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 the classical religious conception of sacred time and secular time, or our mundane time and, 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 uh, and sacred time, where you know, we're going about our day, we have our normal rhythms of life. And right now we're going through modernity, our eight hour work day and, and things like that. But then when, you, when you're in a concert, a two hour concert, or you're, 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 let's say it's a symphony or it doesn't have to be a symphony, it could be pop concert or hip hop or anything. Um, you are exiting mundane time and you're entering into this new virtual reality. And, and one of those ways that it does that is through is through motion and through and through beat and through speed, um, and we and it's the, it's called entrainment. Entrainment is when you, with your, your your bodily perception is becoming aligned with the the groove happening out here, and and then that spreads throughout the crowd. So the whole crowd is now on the same beat with each other, and you're in sync with whether it's the conductor or the you know the musicians on stage and things like that. And so just by doing that, you are transitioning, okay, trans, you're transitioning from what was happening outside, out my mundane space and time and, and normal life into this new realm. And so it really is like pre-video pre games, pre-VR, it is, it was, a, a, a let's say it's a technology of virtual reality. Um, that's one way of defining what is a musical event. Um, and historically, they came from the arts came from historically from religious expressions. It's like, it's like, how do we, you know, how do I access God? Who is God? How do I represent God? Um, uh, the, the, the drama, the visual arts, music, all of these things have their origin in ritual and religious expression. And then what over time as humans settled and developed crafts, you take one of those elements and you can professionalize it. And so I think what we have now, on the, we're on the tail end of millennia of specialization, 
where we've sort of we've just sort of taken that out of this what was what used to be a more of a holistic um, consciousness in society. And so now we say, well, this is music over here, right? And we, we sort of separated that out. And so now, now what we do is we anachronistically apply this, his, this layer here on top of what had happened in the past. And so you get people like, uh, uh, I forget his name. He's, he's the author. He's an evolutionary biologist, author of a book called uh, Darwin's Cathedral, I'm forgetting his name. But he, he said in the video, he said, well, you look at religions, they're essentially just a bunch of arts. Like, and, and I'm like, mm, maybe the arts, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the arts is essentially a bunch of religious impulses, right? Uh, and, and because you take, what he's doing is what we mostly do is when you, when you look in a Bible and you're reading all the times the word music occurs in the Bible, that is not the word that's there. The, the, the word music, originally Greek, uh, musica, it does occur one time in the Bible. It doesn't happen until, uh, I think it's John's revelation. Um, every other time in the Old Testament, there are other words happening there. And, and so that, that's another reason why I've just been really thinking about, you know, how, the way we talk about it and how we make sense and, and meaning of it. It's like, as soon as you throw in that word music, it's like, man, that's really hard. To, it's really hard to escape your, your, your present day, modern day bias as well. So anyways. That well, was... and partly I think that would be, I mean, if I put myself back in, 17th 18th century there someplace and i'm not a music historian so i don't i've probably got the names wrong but but if i'm thinking of liszt or chopin or or mozart or any of those people mm -hmm. they were so prominent in their day and their work i think was played contemporaneously with their life and so it would seem that at that time with no radio and no television and no technology of that sort that people would hear this music, it would be more something that would captivate a nation or that would captivate a region, a certain kind of music, so that there was a, a collectivism sort of, of gathering together around this certain kind of music. So you had a connection with that music and maybe they also had a connection with music from the past that had been of the same sort, that had gathered people together in a certain way of experiencing music but now with tv radio um internet mm. no it's it's just like there's no water there's no water cooler um story that people are gathered around anymore there's mm. no water cooler music that people are gathered around anymore mm. everybody has their own playlist of their listening stuff from the past or maybe some people are listening to indonesian music and some people are listening to jazz and and we don't have this common thread anymore of what gathers us together as a people in this experience of music. Not on the macro level, you're totally right. And this is why Jordan Peterson said in another interview, in another context, he said in the, in the, the death of God, in the death of God, music was there to fill that void. It did that for so many subcultures, um, the Beatles, hip hop, you know, the jazz community, all of, and, and I, I'm, I am, it's changed now, um, but I, I am still of the age of, uh, when I was in school, you had different groups of friends hung out because they had a common interest in the same bands. You know, they wore the, whether, whether or not they wore the band t-shirts, you know, the, you know, the goths and, you know, the people over here, they, they all listen to the same country artists. And so they, they would get in each other's cars and listen to each other's stereos and, um, and, and music was, uh, it, it was a social definer 
you know, you are who you listen to. And, and not only that, but like the values of the artists, you know, you, you dress that way, you talk that way. Um, and, and so because the, just the act of, oh, that band's coming in, let's go to the concert and the act of, you know, the excitement about it, the preparation for it, you know, the tunes, you know, the motions, you know, the moves, you know, the riffs. And, and when you gather together in a space in an amphitheater or some kind, and there's this experience there and it's euphoric and you've left mundane time, you're in this new virtual reality, you're sharing it with the community. There's communitas. Victor Turner is a scholar of ritual. And he wrote a very famous book called The Ritual Process. And in that book, he talks about when you when you're when you're when you're at the when you're in the middle of a ritual, you are now engaged in communitas and, and, and you're not in you're not in the normal framework of time and relate like relationships become inverted. For example, you and your boss might be at the same concert. At work, there's that hierarchy, but in this concert, that hierarchy is totally flattened and elevated and, and upside down. Um, you know, and perhaps perhaps you're in a band and your boss came to watch you play, right? And so that's a that's a real uh, hierarchy reversal as well. Um, and so it's no surprise why. Um, this particular thing we're talking about, music, um, had been in the 20th century, at the very least, um, a, an outlet for this this need to 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 be bound with people, doing things that that helped us to experience things beyond ourself, um, perceive the transcendent, you know, to to encounter something, to be elevated, to have these experiences. The example that I always like to talk about is I had a colleague who, avid atheist, um, Sam Harris follower, but then he also played in a, a doom metal rock band. And, uh, and whenever he was playing in his rock band, there's I went, went to one concert and they took their shirts off. And it's like, okay, well, if you're Mr. Science Rationalist, we need to be everything that needs to be precisely explained by science over here. But then you have this Dionysian expression over here well what's happening over here and why are you doing it right and like it's just uh th that's that's always been one of my sort of critiques of like a lot of like the richard dawkinses of the world who are like uh you know that religious you know foo-foo mumbo jumbo and yet he has transcended experiences with the music of bach yeah so maybe this would be a good place to bring in that that video clip from the deeper into the weeds conversation um let me share a screen for this and <clears throat> here we have these guys. I think I've got it queued up to the right place. You can let me know. Okay. Yeah. This is a good spot. In your in example, the, the music, which yeah. John Rusin used, the musicality of intelligibility as I think the best way to think about it. Yeah, I what think so too. I, th I think that's actually, I actually think that's why we like music. Yes. Because I think that music is actually the most representational art form. Because for a variety of reasons. First of all, we don't see objects, we see patterns and we interpret some patterns as objects. So mm -hmm. patterns are primary. Then we're looking for the harmonious interplay of patterns. And then it's not, it's not strictly a causal relationship because the music is governed by principles but it's not formally predictable. Otherwise it gets boring. Yeah, exactly. Right. So exactly. you see that, I think most particularly, I've, I've experienced that most particularly with Bach's uh, Brandenburg concertos, which have this amazing continual unfolding. That's so logical. 
it almost appears mathematical and yet it's unpredictable and you don't know where it's going to go exactly. and it goes there and you think man that just that's just right yes. so yeah and so you could say that you could say that about pretty much everything that exists that is that you know i like the glass because it's just easy so so the the idea is that there is a through line in this glass and but the through line goes through potentiality which is indefinite mm -hmm. it is i can encounter a million glasses in my life and they will all be different well, that's like the realm of musical possibility exactly the, the, it's all but they all end up being predictable to a certain extent once i grasp it like when i see the glass i recognize it but i couldn't have predicted that this is the glass it that would exist there. there's a there's a kind of potentiality which which is maintained within the identity of the glass but is not it's inexhaustible right and when you see that when you apprehend that and this is Scarry's point this is being struck by beauty you see the tree and it's somehow it's like every other tree you've seen and yet it's not it mm -hmm. reminds you of the idos it reminds you of just what you said mm. and that's love i think that that's love too like in love in the sense that i've often said love is the capacity for unity and multiplicity to exist that's what love is mm. right that is that i i recognize something of you that uh, we have in common but I also recognize you're completely separate from me. Oh, and that is and love, both are valued. Those both have to coexist for love to be real. It has to be separation. Well, and that to, to give the devil his due, you know, I would say that's the kernel of good that the diversity types are pushing. You know, we need to recognize the utility of multiplicity. It's like well, fair enough. Probably the, there. the problem with that, a problem with that is, well, yeah, but what's where? Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, the first thing that, um, while, what, what Jordan was talking about with, we, you, you don't see objects, you see patterns and we perceive, we perceive some patterns as objects, but we primarily perceive patterns. And so because of that, music is the most representational art form. First of all, I think that is a, a really brilliant rhetorical, uh, it's 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 amazing he can condense that idea in in, in so many sentences. It's really it really the thing is a that complex. That fascinates me about his work altogether is that almost every sentence is a condensed chapter at the very yeah. Least. I, it's I, it's such a brilliant formulation and and the other th there's a couple of reasons. One of the things that one of the reasons that that particular way of saying it's the most representational art form is you hear it absolutely all the time everywhere is that music is the most abstract of the art forms. Um, it's the least representational because of the point that I was making earlier. Like there is no sound, there is no melody that means pine tree in Italy. Um, there's a painting of it you could look at, then you can represent it, but there isn't. And yet what he's saying is really, we are creatures of pattern, um, which that's, that's a thesis I, I, I do believe in. Um, as a jazz musician, I wanted to connect with what he was talking about, about potentiality and about um uh you know about about how th th things getting boring right you still you know, like it's, it's not like box music is this unfolding of layers um and it it just doesn't get boring where in jazz it's like you you can have five players five saxophonists okay playing the same tune um each of them is taking an improvisation on this exact same chord changes but you're going to get five improvised solos that don't sound the same between them. They're all 
going to sound like jazz saxophone solos. They're all going to be some amalgamation of every other influence in jazz that these artists have ever heard. If you hear me play, it's an amalgamation of some John Coltrane, some Sonny Stitt, some Cannonball Adderley, but then also, you know, some Miles Davis and Dexter Gordon and some other things that I've picked up along the way. And then, and then just my own, whatever's going on in my own head in relationship to the sounds around me, out's going to come a sound that you have heard, but you've never heard at the same time. Um, and, and I think that's partially why jazz is this really cool metaphor as well. There's a, there's a physicist, uh, Stefan Alexander, who wrote a book about physics called The Jazz of Physics. Um, and he uses jazz as this really important metaphor for physics. I think that would be a really interesting interrogation between uh, Wolfgang Smith uh, and, and this physicist, uh, Stefan Alexander. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to read that book, but, um, uh, but yeah, that's true. And I, I think, I think, I think, um, jazz makes a really interesting contribution in this concept, in this, in this conversation because of that. So the most representational art form, the harmonious interplay of patterns. And then they went on to talk about the, um, the through line Jonathan Peugeot was making the point about the through line of a glass, the potentiality yes. that exists there and the pattern that with which we interact with that glass and the through line of the fact that it is a glass, it's recognizable to us as a glass. All generations that have ever had a glass have recognized it as a glass. What is yes. that through line that connects it all together? And, uh, and they were connecting that to this idea of the intelligibility of music. So I wonder if you might want to say a little bit about that. I, I would put it this way. Um, I mean, this is where just thinking in terms of genres is very helpful. Um, you know, Dolly Parton, innovative country artist, um, pushed her own boundaries, made her own music, wrote her own songs, yet we still, it's still recognizably country music, right? Uh, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, pushed boundaries, pushed boundaries, innovated, geniuses, and yet we can still recognize them as being jazz, but you would not put John Coltrane in a category of bluegrass, right? It wasn't the bluegrass music. Um, you can have generations of bluegrass players innovating within that idiom, but you can only innovate so far until you eventually went in and then genre, genre defying, you know, boundaries are pushed and then people sort of recategorize into, oh, well, they're doing something new as well. Um, and, and, but it's just kind of amazing how um, a single style of music can abide for so long with so many original songs and yet still remain true to the, the sonic environment in which it comes from and the, and the culture from which it comes from as well. Um, so that's how I would interpret, that's how I would apply Peugeot's uh, uh, analogy of the glass. Um, it, and, and interestingly enough, it, Maybe you do want 12 of the exact same glass. You do not want 12 of the exact same jazz solo. You, you long to hear as, as listeners, as, it's just part of what you're participating in. You, you, you long to hear the, 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 the unity and you long to hear the, the, the multiplicity and the, and the plurality. And, 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 and part, part of, I think, our, our draw to music in general is that we we experience unity and variety simultaneously. Um, we experience unity on many levels. First of all, we experience unity. Maybe your favorite style of music is um, contemporary Christian music. There's going to be things, there's going to be principles that abide across 
all of the different bands and all of the different songs um, and all the different riffs and motifs. But then within a song, you're going to experience unity um, where uh, a theme is originally sung or performed and then that theme comes up later on where the chord progressions recycle, um, you know, where you, you come right back again to the top of the form. But then you also experience multiplicity and diversity and variety as well with, with just different artists. Obviously they write albums of different songs and then within a song you experience the variety of, well, this theme is then contrasted with another theme. These two, these sections have different harmonic principles happening. It contrasts with rhythm. Um, and then and then the more you study music theory and composition, you can do lots of really cool things with taking a melody and inverting it and flipping it and, and, and different forms as well. And so we, we, we're constantly encountering that experience on a phenomenological level, on a way that we're just going through in time, this uh, principle of unity and variety. Which is so fascinating that unity and variety can create infinity to the creative process, right? And I mean, that's always fascinated with me with 12 notes on the keyboard, how many songs have been written and there's still millions of songs that can be written out of those 12 notes. And part of that is if I go back to the to Jonathan's example of the glass, it depends on what scale you're looking at as whether or not you have 12 identical glasses. If you go down to the scale of particles, <clears throat> those are not identical glasses. The particles that are randomly hitting each other that form up that glass are infinitely variable particles moving in infinitely random ways and yet you have 12 glasses that somehow have that unity and that through line that not only are they glasses but they are those 12 glasses that are identical to our eyes right and i think it's the same way if you scale up you can say well that's a star and that's a star but but that's just what we can see from here. You know, the James Webb Telescope gets out there and looks at those stars and pretty soon they're galaxies and one is a spiral galaxy and one is a, is a, I don't know what, a galaxy that's getting eaten by a black hole. But to our eyes, they both just look like stars in the sky. So yeah. scale is necessarily dependent on what we as human beings can see. But, but the multiplicity and the variety and the flexibility and the diversity that exists at every scale, it's a miracle that we can see anything as a thing, that we can identify mm -hmm. anything as, um, which is why I think Platonism yes. is so important, that, that yes. there, is, mm -hmm. there is this, what okay. Wolfgang Smith calls this vertical causation, this instantaneous moment that gives form to everything that allows us to identify what it is. I think it was Peugeot who commenting on music, who said that music, music is um, an ultimate expression of this tendency of well, his definition of consciousness was like perceiving patterns, like a, a pattern that perceives and produces patterns or something like that. Um, and that is, uh, that is certainly what's happening musically you you can only perceive a melody by virtue of your ability to detect the patterns happening and being able to hold those patterns internally while they're unfolding over time you know and then it, like it, it's just that simple of you know and then in your head you automatically went to that that 
and, and we have a relationship with patterns. So it's um, in, in another way, music is um, that manifestation of consciousness that just that that totally innate human um, uh, capacity for producing and perceiving patterns and producing new patterns and, and being able to play off that. So you can't, you cannot make sense of music without that ability. It, it, it does nothing, it makes no sense without your ability to, to produce and perceive patterns. Um, yeah. well, so the other day, I, or a while back, I heard somebody say that um, for music to be compelling, there has to be a surprise within the first few measures, otherwise, <clears throat> It's not compelling. Would you agree with that? Mm. And, 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 you know, then I have a bigger question that relates to the contemporary Christian music that's being played in the churches, in the Protestant churches today, that I'd like you to comment on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. I think it, I think I would just uh, answered the first question with another question, which is which music are you listening to and which music are you trying to create and, and enjoy an experience? If you're talking about music to consume the way we consume novels and uh, TV shows, then yeah, I better be hooked by the end of the first episode. Otherwise I'm not watching the rest of the show. Um, but that's not the goal of, in fact, most music made in the world. I mean, I, this is again, what do you mean by music? Tribes who get together and perform in dance rituals and who sing songs at the turn of a season. Um, the recitation of the Quran or the Torah, um, Byzantine chant, um, a, Hindu, a, a Hindu raga unfolding over time. You're not trying to surprise people. You're not trying to um, capture an audience with, with a particular interest, there's another goal for those kinds of, for those kinds of rituals, for those kinds of sonic rituals. With the recitation of the Quran, your experience of the tonality is connected to, well, it's a, this is, they call them maqams. Those are the scales that they actually use when you're reciting. Um, reciters often go to music school to learn how to sing in tune with those maqams. Um, but they would never say it's music what they're doing. Um, and in fact, in fact, like ethnomusicologists often point to the recitation of the Quran as like this example of, okay, well, a music scholar is going to look at the recitation and say that this is a musical phenomenon. And so that's why I, as an ethnomusicologist, have an interest in studying it. But then the insider, the reciter, and, and many Muslims would say, it's not music. It's kind of offensive to even put it in the same category as music, even though they're doing so many of the same things that musicians do. Um, so I guess that's that would be my um, first response to that. And that's all, that would be a longer conversation to sort of go into that. Well, I mean, the reason, the reason I tied it up with what's happening in the churches today is that I've noticed something. I've been in Protestant churches for many years and, um, Contemporary Christian music has taken a quite a different flavor today than it had even 20 years ago. Mm. And part of it is that the melodies seem calculated to be trying to do something unique and innovative and surprising that you can't predict. 
which makes it almost impossible for a person sitting in the congregation to sing along with the people on the stage. Mm. Because melodies of older Christian music were somewhat predictable. You kind of knew where it was going to go based on the harmonies that you were hearing. So you felt like you could Mm. sing along with the people on the stage and participate. And it would gather the body together in this experience of participating in the music. But now you're just bound and determined you're going to stumble all over yourself if you start singing with them because you're guessing what the next note is going to be. And it might be in a completely different key than what they're singing in. They've they've jumped down an octave when you think it's going to be over here. And I don't understand why they're doing it. I love I love a lot of contemporary Christian music. It's very innovative and beautiful and powerful, and I'm not against it. But I just don't understand what they're doing in the last few years because so much of it seems almost like a recitative, like like we've got this thing we want to, we've got this story we want to tell with this recitative and the rest of you, it's just too bad if you can't follow along. <laughs> so, and I'm a singer. I mean, I used to lead worship, so I, I, I understand, mm. um, but it, it's a puzzlement to me. So I wondered if you had any comments on contemporary Christian music in the church or do you, you, maybe you don't face that in Tunis. You're, you're worshiping probably with either with uh, the local people or with, if it is a church, it would be a church of expats, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. So I do lead worship for our um, sort of, it's a, it, is a, it is an expat church that's Protestant, but we're not aligned to a particular, mm-hmm. you know, liturgy. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like a, Protestant worship service with like a Bible study thrown in the middle and things like that. But we do. Uh, so I do, I lead songs that are CCM and I, and I lead hymns and, and other things as well. I'm very familiar with uh, and very comfortable with contemporary Christian music. Um, I think there's been a lot of good from CCM. Um, and uh, well, it's obviously connecting with masses of people. So on some level it is doing something uh, well, let's just say it's doing something musically correct if it's able to connect with so many people. Because, I mean, definitionally, if it was musically not correct, then it would be not, it wouldn't have risen to where it is today. I mean, I, that's one argument I would throw out. I would also throw out maybe a little bit of a counter argument, which is to say that whenever I'm singing a hymn, especially when I'm singing it, reading from a hymnal, especially if I'm reading the tenor line of the hymnal, I'm not thinking about the words. I'm sorry. I'm trying to sing that line in tune, right? I, and there's just a lot of other things going on when I'm trying to engage in this other mode of sacred song in the Christian church. Um, and so like there have been many times when I'm singing um, a hymn or, you know, something in, something in harmony where I, yeah, I actually stop thinking about what the words mean, let alone it's written in older English anyway. So I'm not even because now I have to convert this passive tense sentence into something that I'm trying to sing in tune with the tenor line. So that can be hard too. That can be challenging. That's just, that's a little bit of a counter argument there. I uh, agree that there is, um, I mean, there's just a lot of bad songs, um, you know, just in terms of compositional features and things like that. But I don't think, I think a lot of CCM, I think the way I, the way I view CCM is that it's, um, you have songs with absolutely gorgeous lyrics and I think pretty good melody and, uh, and uh, pretty standard, you know, chord progressions as far as that goes. 
Um, a lot of that aesthetic is plucked from just pop music in general um, or electronic dance music, EDM uh, in general. Um, uh, but I think there's a, there's a greater emphasis in a lot of music of repetition, you know, singing the same motifs over and over and over and over, and over again. Um, that is not inherently a wrong thing to do. Uh, we see that in so many uh, ritualistic contexts. I'm just thinking more from an anthropological level now. In Islam, uh, Sufi music, um, they're, 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 as, as the ritual crescendos to um, um, possession, oneness with God, uh, um, trans, um, it, it, the, you're, you're, you're sort of moving up and down and you're repeating the exact same words and chanting the exact same three tones over and over and over and over and over again. So the repetition when it's used in like a CCM context um, is one of the, it's one of the musical technologies of, of leaving your, putting your brain behind you and just sort of moving forward, let's say with your heart or with your spirit or something like that. Something, something that you're, something that the ego goes behind. Um, it, it sort of bypasses that. Um, and so I, I can, I'm just thinking of from a ritual context, why that would sort of make sense. When you're talking about, I think you were mentioning something about the intentional use of surprise though. Um, I don't, yeah, how do I put, I mean, I don't, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where that's the case, well, but I, there are some songs with clunky melodies. What are, what are some of the songs that you like to use when you're leading worship? That would be oh, um, yeah, well, since you put me on the spot here, <laughs> pull up my playlist here, my uh, my uh, worship list. Um, Christ is enough. There is no other name. Um, David Crowder, only you. Um, give me faith. Uh, build your kingdom. Cornerstone. You alone can rescue. And then some some hymns. Ten thousand reasons. And there's just a lot of a lot of the a lot of the. Well, see, those here. are all. Those would all be what I would categorize older. Yeah, the older songs. Aughts, maybe the aughts. Yeah, to the twenty yeah. years ago. The, yeah. the the music that was singable. Oceans, was, oceans. Oceans. I like oceans. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, gorgeous, gorgeous lyrics. All of that was singable, and it was something you could join together in, and you could have that sense of exaltation and transcendence. And uh, but something's happened in the last five to ten years, at least with this music that's being used at our church. Um, Is it a mega church, or it's a it's a? Is it a mega church? Well. I don't know if you'd call it mega. We have five campuses and each campus used to have maybe 500 people, but now after COVID, maybe 250 people at each campus. Um, each campus has their own worship team. There is one teaching pastor usually on a jumbotron because that's just sort of the way things work out here in the Bay Area. But it's not what I would call a mega church, not like you know 10,000 people or something. So it's probably a mega church compared to Tunis. We seem to have lost your feed, Drew. Um, so maybe that means that we should end the episode here. <laughs> but um, I will put a list of Drew's favorite songs in the... Uh, 
in the def in the description section of the video so that we can all take a look at those because they are some wonderful pieces of music. And uh, I want to give a hearty thanks to Drew for his time and effort in joining me because I think it's been a fascinating conversation about music, music as communication, music as leading us into that experience of transcendence and beauty that is timeless. So um, I thank you all for listening. If you enjoy this kind of content, I hope that you can hit the subscription button and tap the bell because then you get notified every time there's a new video. I don't often put it in a plug for the for our channel, but um, I appreciate all of you who watch and listen. And I will also put this one on a podcast. So if you prefer just listening, you can go to Spotify or Apple for this one. And um, I'll have that in the description section as well. So hope you all have a wonderful week. And I pray and hope that you would get involved in the comment section because I love hearing from you. Have a great day.